Way City Church, located in Woodbridge, Virginia, is led by Pastor Marlon Yearwood and exists to reach the lost and disciple the believer. Let's get to our text today. So I think the Lord has plenty to say to us. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, if you have your, your Bibles. I'm going to just go ahead and read it, and then, we will, um, and then we'll get kind of into it. So let's just start off by, by reading the Word of God and, and letting Him begin to speak to us through it. So it's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So back in 2003, before I ever got into church planting, I was on staff at Harrisonburg Baptist Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. I was brought on as a part-time youth pastor which, if you know anything about ministry, there's no such thing as part-time youth pastor. There's just part-time pay. So I was paid part-time but working full-time as a youth pastor. Um, and, and in this particular church, it was an older church. It had uh, a significant um, uh, population of, of those that would be in the retired era of their life. And then we had a few uh, young families in this particular church, just a few. And, and so when I came on staff, uh, two or three of these families invited my wife and I over for dinner. And so we're sitting around the table, and one of these families, this couple, uh, very attractive, good-looking young couple, and we're having dinner, and my wife looks at them, and she was like, wow, you guys are really tan. Like, they, they looked very tan. And she was like, did you guys just, like, go on a vacation to the beach or, like, Hawaii or where, you know, you guys must have gone somewhere because you guys are so tan. And they said, well, no, no, you know, we didn't go on vacation. We're, we're tan because we're working out in the fields. We're farmers. And I was like, wow, I've never actually met a, a real farmer before, right? Um, and, and so we're like, okay, all right, great. That's, wow, that's crazy. You're a farmer. And then, and then a few moments later in the conversation, it kind of shifted. My wife and I at the time, we were just, uh, we were in our senior year at James Madison, and we were about to graduate. And so they said to my wife, they said, uh, they said okay, Jamie, now that you're graduating, what, you know, you think you're going to get a job? And she said, uh, she said, well, you know, Harrisonburg, you know, options are kind of limited. You know, you've got the university, you've got the hospital, and you've got poultry, which if you don't know, Harrisonburg is actually the poultry capital of the world. You've got Tyson's and Purdue and Pilgrim's Pride there, and there's all these chicken and turkey factories there. And, uh, and so she said this kind of tongue-in-cheek, work in poultry, and they looked at her and they said, yeah, we've got 200,000 chickens. They're also chicken farmers. So it's just kind of this, like, uh, how many times can I actually put my foot in my mouth in one conversation, right? 
And, uh, and, and really, my wife and I grew up in military families, both of us, so we kind of moved around. We spent a lot of time on military bases. And so literally never met an actual real farmer. I knew they existed, but it was kind of this mythological creature to me. You know, it's like these are, these are actual real farmers. And, um, and, and it was really at my time at, at Harrisonburg Baptist Church where the Lord began to kind of open my eyes up to the reality of the beauty of the diversity that can exist in the church. In Harrisonburg Baptist Church, we had farmers, we had the dean of the computer science department at, at JMU, uh, we had cabinet makers, ER doctors, carpenters, uh, we had plumbers, homeless people, nurses, moms, business owners, realtors, college students. We have this, this very diverse group of people, even in this small rural town. In fact, I was, uh, they eventually asked me to launch a contemporary worship service at this church, and my sound guy was a 65-year-old retired postal worker with hearing aids. Now, you t generally want your sound guy to be able to actually hear, um, but that was kind of all I had in our church, and so he was my sound guy. And, uh, and, and so really, um, you know, I got this chance to see this beautiful diversity of, of kind of vocational, uh, uh, you know, roles at, at this particular church. Now, I know in Washington, D.C., kind of everybody's a consultant, right? That's what we got. We have consultant and consultants. Uh, but in Washington, D.C., we have this unbelievable diversity of background, of cultures. Uh, literally, people live here from every part of the nation and every part of the world with stories. Um, everybody's coming in with you know, different stories and different places from life. There's this beautiful diversity that we have in our city. Uh, 168 languages spoken in Washington, D.C., 1.2 million foreign-born immigrants in Washington, D.C. Um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful place. And what we're going to see today is that while in the church we have distinctions and we are different, we should never be divided. That there should be unity in the church. While we have distinctions, we should never be divided. And, and truly, our culture today, in so many ways, is, is one of the most polarized, divided times in the history of our nation. And, and um, the church has an unbelievable opportunity to show the world what it looks like when a diverse group of people are able to come together and be united because of our common belief and faith in Jesus. And, and this is so important. I, I can't uh, emphasize enough how important this is because truly the mission and the testimony of the church is at stake be, through, the, through the demonstration and the display of unity in the body of Christ. Truly, at the heart of the gospel, um, is the, the evidence of God's wisdom on display literally to the cosmos through the unity of a diverse people. If you go back in Ephesians, to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, it, it says that, um, that, that God's manifold wisdom is put on display to principalities and authorities through the, to the cosmos 
through a diverse group of people being brought together and unified and reconciled because of the blood of Jesus. At his time, he was talking specifically about Jew and Gentile being brought together, which if you know anything about the history there, uh, those groups of people did not like each other, but the two became one. They became one people. And so we want to see a diverse group of people brought together for the display of God's manifold wisdom. And, and, and so, in other words, the mission of the church is crippled if there is division within the body of Christ. The mission of the church is crippled if there is division. So you can have the best coffee in the world, you can have a great location like this in a brewery, having church, you can have wonderful graphics, you can have great kids ministry, you can have all the things at a church, but if the people are divided and there is a lack of unity, we have not succeeded in being the church. We've not succeeded in being the church. The mission of the church is to display the manifold wisdom of God through unity and love for one another. And so I I wonder, have you ever considered how important it is that there is unity in the body of Christ? You know, what is actually at stake? Why is it paramount that we fight for unity in the body of Christ? And just a little bit of background on on where we are in this particular book or letter. Uh, It has been written by the Apostle Paul. And for the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul spends uh, three glorious chapters sharing the grand vision of redemptive history. You you see in in chapters one through three that God is one. That God is Trinitarian, though. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. We see that we are created by God, but that we have sinned and walked away from him, disconnected and alienated from God and from one another. Yet God pursues us and sends his Son to live a holy, perfect, righteous life. He dies for our sins, not his own, because he didn't have any to die for. He willingly lays his life down for you and me and dies for our sins that we might be reconciled to him and then to one another, that we might be reconciled to one another. The dividing wall of hostility between peoples has been torn down through the blood of Jesus. And so now we are a, what were a alienated humanity is now being reconciled to God and to one another, united in Christ as one people, as a display for God's manifold wisdom. Now, that begs the question, though, how on earth does that happen? How do we, how do we put this on display? How do we display God's manifold wisdom? And really what Paul does in Ephesians is he spends the next three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, unpacking how does this happen? What does this look like? Uh, And so that's what we're going to be kind of delving into today. How do we uh, accomplish this reality of being a united people? And so uh, let's look in verse 1. Paul starts off, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Now, he had just said almost the exact same thing in chapter 3. He says, uh, he says, uh, I'm, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. I'm in chains for this thing. Paul is writing this letter from prison. He had been thrown into prison, predominantly 
because he was preaching a gospel that included the Gentiles. And the Jews were not a fan of this. And so they had gotten him essentially thrown into prison. And Paul is saying here to the, to the church in Ephesus, he is saying, hey, literally, I'm a prisoner in the Lord. I'm a prisoner in the Lord. Uh, and, and Paul's just laying out for them, hey, I'm in, I'm in chains for this. I, I want to reiterate to you guys, essentially, that this is worth it. I'm in prison for, for my belief and my proclamation of this gospel. And I want you guys to know it is worth it. I want to remind you today, Way City Church, it is worth it. He's saying, I'm in chains for Christ because I have found something that is better than life. The steadfast love of God through Jesus Christ is better than life. And I'm in chains for it, and, and I'm okay with that. And now here he is communicating to us 2,000 years later what it looks like to be God's people. And so he goes on, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So now Paul is really moving from exposition to exhortation, from doctrine to duty, from credenda or matters of faith to agenda. Really, how do we live this out? From mind-boggling theology to down-on-the-earth, on-the-ground reality. What does it look like to live this thing out? In fact, prior to this verse, in, in three chapters in Ephesians, there was only one imperative, only one command. In three chapters... And now he's going to get into much more um, kind of imperatives and commands for, for, for us to say, this is what you should do. And so Paul is saying, you should walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He's using this metaphor of walking. And, and so what he's saying here is, there is a way in which to walk, but conversely, there is a way in which we should not walk, Right? That's kind of the, the, uh, the implied um, meaning to this. And, and really, he's saying, hey, Christians, there is a calling on your life. Did you know that? And, and this text is a calling to walk in a way, not just for pastors, not just for leaders in the church. This is for every person who claims the name of Jesus. This, this text is for you. And so, um, so really, this, this, is, this is for you guys today. This is for me, and this is for you. And so um, I, I talk a lot, you know, I meet with people and, and you know, talk about faith with, with people all the time. And I, one, one common theme that seems to show up over and over and over again is this idea of, I want to know God's will for my life. And, uh, and the church that, that I'm a part of in Arlington, uh, we have a lot of people in their, their you know, 20s, and I think that that's a, that's a very common theme, right? Uh, I want to know God's will for my life. Who should I marry? What job and career should I pursue? Where, where should I live? These, these things, I want to know God's will. And, and there's a distinction between the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. 
Um, the secret will of God, so we have Deuteronomy 29, 29. It, it, it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever that we, uh, that we may do all the words of this law. So there's this idea of distinction that there's, there's secret things that God knows, and, and then there is revealed realities. So there's the secret will of God and the revealed will of God. And, you know, a lot of times people are, are, are looking, trying to figure out, okay, the, 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 the secret will of God. And, and there are prayers focused there, our thoughts, our energies focused there. Like, who should I marry? Okay, I'm going to go to my word and, and look and see if I can find, oh, oh, Jamie, my wife's name. Jamie, her name's not in here, right? Okay, okay, well, what, what should I do for, for work? Okay, let me flip to the table of contents. Oh, awesome, there's a chapter on jobs, right? And so I go to that chapter and I start reading and it's like, oh, this isn't a chapter on jobs, this is Job, right? And so this, this is not a, a roadmap for life, the scriptures. It, it is a, a, a text telling us ultimately who God is and who we are in relation to him. And, and so with that, um, there is... In the scriptures, there is a revealed will that God has for your life that you can start living out today. And my challenge to us today is, what if we took as much energy that we kind of put into really wanting to know the secret will of God? What if we just pursued with our passion the revealed will, the things he's already told us? You know, and, and so um, I just want to welcome you today into full-time ministry, right? A full-time life, a full-time ministry. What if we pursued with passion and zeal what is revealed to us through the Word? Now, we're talking about living, you know, walking and doing things, and there might be some of you that say, okay, wait, 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 wait a minute, I thought the whole essence of the gospel isn't about what I do for God. And now you're saying, I got to do certain things. I got to walk a certain way. I thought, I thought this, this gospel was not about what I do for God. And, and the thing is, is it's not about what you do for God for salvation. But once saved and transformed by Jesus, we are called to walk in a new way. We're called to walk in a way that accords with our new identity in Jesus. You are adopted into the family. You're a child of God now. Uh, You know, my family, I've got three kids, and we get together with other families sometimes, and the kids are off playing, and and, and there will be times where, where kids from another family might, might do certain things or talk in a certain way or say certain words. And, and I catch my kids kind of engaging in that. Uh, I'll grab them and I'll pull them aside and I'll say, I'll say, John, in our family, we don't do that. In our family, we don't say those things. You're a Campbell, and so there's a certain way in which we live our life. And that is very much what we're talking about here today, is to say you have been adopted into God's family, and now we carry the family name. And so there is a way in which God's children live their life. You have been made a son of God. You have been made a daughter of God through Jesus. Now let's act like it. 
the, the theological kind of way that, that theologians talk about this, they say the indicative precedes the imperative. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, jargon, right? What it means is the nature of the gospel is that you are, through faith in Jesus, you're declared righteous. God says you are righteous, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus did. You are righteous, now act like it. Now live that way. You are holy in Jesus. Now live a holy life. You don't, you don't work, 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 or try to be holy, try to be holy, so that then God says, you're holy. You don't, that, it doesn't work that way. It's through faith alone that you are adopted, that you are declared righteous through Jesus. And then he says, now live that way. Be who you already are. Be who you are. You're part of the family. Live that way. Um, so the metaphor here is walking, right? And so in these words even, the, the idea of walking, uh, it suggests something controlled, enduring, directed. It's not something that's passive and aimless. Walk in a manner worthy of, of, of which you have been called. And so there's this idea of, of, of intentionality to our life in Christ. And so really we need to ask, our question, ask ourselves the question, are you passive in your walk with the Lord right now? Are you aimless in your walk? You know, um, a lot of us are going to be traveling in this, this next week, right? Thanksgiving. You've ever, you know, you get in the car, you ride for four or five hours going somewhere, and you get out of the car and you're like, oh, I'm stiff, right? Oh, so stiff. I got to kind of move to, to, to get the stiffness out. And, and a lot of times, hey, you can be in that way in your, in your, your walk with the Lord, right? Things are just stiff. You're not, you're not really walking with him in an intentional way. You're just aimless. And so, so, man, I would say, have you picked up your Bible in the last week and really delved into the Word? Have you spent time praying? And, and I'd be foolish to think that there aren't people in here who you're, you're not in a place where you're walking intentionally. You are in a passive place. You are in an aimless place. And I would just tell you, hey, man, there's grace. Like, just start working the kinks out. Just, just start walk, walking. Don't, don't be aimless. Be intentional in your walk with the Lord. There's grace for you. Um, my wife, before we got married, way back in the day when she was working, she worked at a, a, a gym in high school. And the gym's name was Naughty Body, okay? Naughty Body in Springfield. And, uh, and so she, she's working the front desk at this particular gym, and every day she walked into work, she'd walk past the, the owner's car, and she, he had a vanity license plate. And, and she'd think to herself, she'd be like, Rue Naughty, Rue Naughty. She's like, what does that mean? That's weird, Rue Naughty. And so she'd go in, she'd work, and for three months, she's walking past this car. Rue naughty, rue naughty. And so uh, after several months, we were actually having dinner at her house, her whole family, and the conversation turned to vanity license plates. And everybody was kind of sharing funny vanity license plates they'd seen. We're all laughing and cutting up. And my wife chimes in, at the time she's my girlfriend, and she chimes in and she's like, yeah, like my boss at work has this license plate. Like, it, it says Rue Naughty, like he's such a meathead, like Rue, Rue, Rue Naughty, you know? And she says, it's spelled 
are you naughty? And we just sat there, our mouths open like, did that just happen? That just happened. That's awesome. You know, I mean, we just died laughing, right? And, and, and here's, here's why I bring this up. You know, she, she was reading it, and she totally missed the meaning. And, and we can absolutely do this when it comes to the Word of God. We just kind of glaze over the words, and we totally miss the meaning and, and the beauty of what is right in front of us. And so, um, so you know, man, have you, are you reading your Bible Runati style, right? I mean, uh, like, are you, are you truly seeing the beauty of what is in the Scriptures before you, or have you lost the consistency and, and walking nature of the Christian life? It's meant to be daily. Do you daily feast on the life-changing insights into the character and nature of God through the banquet of His Word? It's fresh bread every day, right? I mean, have you ever smelled fresh bread cooking? It's like, oh man, it smells so good. Like, it's the bread of life. Living water. It, it's, it's fresh every day. Like, let's, let's, let's get in there. Let's enjoy it. Let's see the reality of what we are, we're, we're reading when we read about who God is. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Don't glaze over it. So how are we to walk? How are we to walk? So Paul's going to give us a list of things that if we're going to be unified, we're going we're to see these character traits in our life and, and in our church if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called and display God's manifold wisdom in the church, we're going to embody these character traits. So let me read it again. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we're going to deal with these four character traits. And now immediately we are in kind of a countercultural reality because we live in a day and an age where character does not matter that much. We're, we're a culture that's very focused on production and a lot of times the, uh, the means aren't as important as the end. And in God's economy, God is concerned with our motives and the means. He's concerned about that as much as he's concerned about the end, right? And, and, um, and we live in a day and an age where we are just obsessed with getting stuff done, and maybe we don't care as much about how it gets done. I mean, we just got through with an election cycle. Think about that, right? Lies, manipulations, just all in the name of the end product, winning the election. Like, we, we don't care. And, and that's not how God does things. God is a God of means as well as a God of ends. And so with this, how are we to live? So the first one, he says, we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called with all humility. Humility. Now, in ancient Greek, uh, ancient Greek world where this text was being written, um, this word humility 
would not have been seen positively, right? They would not have seen this idea of humility and said, oh, that's a good thing. No, it would have actually had a negative connotation to them. Um, they, they would have not have seen it as something admirable. It was, this word was used of slaves and in the context of submission. I mean, even for us, what's your gut level reaction to the word humility? I mean, humiliation, very, very closely tied to this word, right? And, and I think for a lot of Christians, we, we have uh, some confusion around this idea of humility because we, we begin to think that, that humility, if we are humble, we can't live with conviction. Like if I'm a humble person, I'm going to be weak and uncertain about things. And it's a modern mistake that we associate humility with uncertainty or a lack of conviction and strength. Uh, humility is not about uncertainty, about truth. It's about uncertainty more about ourselves and, and, and questioning our own self and knowing ourselves. It's not a weakness surrounding our convictions about truth. Let me, I want to read to you a quote from uh, G.K. Chesterton. He wrote a book about 100 years ago, and it was a book called Orthodoxy. And he says this, this was a hundred years ago. We suffer from today. What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt, the divine reason or truth. And uh, man, how true is that? How true is that? Uh, mm. So I love country music. Um, any country music fans in the house? Oh, I got one. Ooh, not, not among friends. Um, okay, so, so I used to be the rest of you. I hated country music growing up, right? I, I played guitar. I was in a band. I liked rock music, and, and I, I wanted nothing to do with country music. And then things changed. There was a process where I went from hating it to becoming a fan. Now, how do you think that happened? It always involves a girl, right? <laughs> And so, so let me walk you through the process. So, so I, I'm, I start dating a beautiful young woman who happens to now be my wife of 17 years. And so I'm taking her out on, on our first date, and she turns on the radio. We're in the car. She turns on the radio. She turns on the country music station. And that's stage one, tolerance. Stage one is tolerance. So I'm sitting here. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this girl is beautiful. Like, I can't even believe she's going out with me right now. Like, okay, I'll just tolerate the music. I'm not going to say a blessed thing. Just tolerate it, okay? And then you go, you find yourself uh, into stage two, which is acceptance, right? You find yourself listening to this music, and you're like, yeah, those tunes are kind of catchy, right? Like, that chorus is kind of catchy. I mean, it's not too bad, right? You, you get to this place of acceptance. And then when you know you've gone from hating country music to becoming a fan is when you're all alone in the car, 
and you turn on that radio station and you find yourself all by yourself turning that, that station on and I'm sitting there and I'm like, what just happened to me? How did this happen? How do I somehow now like this music? What is going on? So a few years ago, there was a, uh, an artist, his name was Tim McGraw, and he wrote a song called Live Like You're Dying, okay? So, so this, was, this was the song and the whole song was, you know, kind of, uh, you know, I found out I'm going to die and then all the things that he, he wanted to do before he died. So He's saying, I went skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. John 13, verse 1, Jesus was at the Last Supper, and the scripture says that he knew his, his time to depart from this world had come. He knew he was going to die. And what does Jesus do? He gets a basin of water. He gets down on his knees with a cloth. And he washes the feet of the disciples. For Jesus, living like he's dying, meant he was serving other people. It's just remarkable. And we see in verses eight through or six through eight that, that Peter, he comes to Peter, and Peter says, Whoa, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I'm going what I'm doing to you, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Here's, here's the thing. You and I need to let Jesus serve us. This is part of the gospel. And and really what we're seeing here, uh, we don't want to be Peter. It it was a faux humility. He's saying, essentially, you're God. I'm not. I should be washing your feet. I should be washing your feet. It's it's pride and self-sufficiency. Rather... The path of humility for you and for me will come when we learn to receive from Jesus and then ascribe to God the workings of all things in you and I, right? It's an awareness that all that we have is from him. It's all from God and that we are dependent always on God. It's an awareness that we are dependent upon him. And, and it's, it's difficult to be arrogant when we realize that all that is good in you and I is a gift and it belongs to God. Your brains, your talents, your good looks, your wealth, your energy, the breath in your lungs, your job, your house, your clothes, your, your health, they're all a gift from God. Every last bit of it. There isn't one of us, right, who wrapped on the womb when we were, when we were still in the womb saying, hey, can I, can I get a higher IQ? Can I get some, you know, blonde hair or brown eyes, whatever it might be? We didn't do that. You didn't do that. There isn't one of us. It's all a gift. Everything we have. And when, when we have our perception of reality adjusted 
to see that God is the author of all things and that all things exist for his glory, it's hard to be arrogant, isn't it? This word humility, it literally kind of, it has this connotation of lowliness of mind. And and it focuses on our thinking. See, that's the thing. Humility is not a one-time event. It's a mindset. Humility is not a one-time event. It's a mindset, a way of seeing the world, a way of seeing God, a way of seeing reality. That's what humility is. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, how do you see yourself? What is your perception of reality when it comes to your talents, your gifts, your abilities, your wealth, your career? And if we fail to see that God is at the center of all that and ascribe him the glory, we're in dangerous territory. We need to align our lives and our thinking much more with uh, what we see in Philippians 2.5. I'll read this to you. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, why is this so important, this idea of humility? Uh, I, I think that there, man, this is vitally important when it comes to the health of, of a church because there is nothing Nothing more divisive and devastating for the witness and the health of a church than for it to be filled with arrogant, prideful people. I've personally seen the church that I was growing up in through high school just devastated by prideful people. We went from six pastors on staff to zero in one year. And it was because prideful people gossiping, stabbing each other in the back, all in the name of Jesus? Um, Man, pride will kill churches. And so my challenge to, to you guys and to every church plant and every church period is that we should aggressively challenge each other in love and in Christ to be a humble people with the mindset of Jesus thinking of others before ourselves. Because the mission is at stake. The testimony of the church is at stake. Right? I mean, let's be humble people. Humble. And like I'm saying, that doesn't mean you're not a convictional people. You are. But we're humble, thinking of others before ourselves like Jesus did. All right, so humility. Number two is gentleness. So humility, um, really, again, so gentleness, like humility, uh, this word is not esteemed by our culture. Uh, We don't associate gentleness with strength. We think, again, that that, that it it means you're weak. Um, But here's the thing. A weak person, uh, being gentle doesn't mean you're weak. I think some of the strongest people I've ever met are gentle people. Uh, we had a guy in our church growing up that I just loved and respected. He was a general in the, in the army. 
and I mean, just had a presence, right? I mean, you got in the room and everybody knew this guy was there. And, but he was one of the most gentle people you would ever meet. He was just kind and gentle. And the thing is, is that humility really ties to gentleness. If you struggle with being gentle, I would tell you, you struggle with pride. Because uh, gentle people think about others. They're more concerned about others than they are about themselves. And when you're prideful, you're not thinking about other people. So it's hard to be gentle when you're a prideful person. And so um, I just wanted to today challenge us to, to say, let's, let's be a gentle people. But um, specifically, just wanted to challenge the men to say, you know, challenge you to cultivate a culture of gentleness in our homes. Being gentle with our wife, being gentle with our kids. Um, I, met, I meet with a lot of men and discuss their lives. And I would tell you, I, my, I believe that we're a generation that has grown up, by and large, fatherless. And if we did have interactions with our fathers, a lot of times it was just harsh disciplinarian action. And, and so just a, a generation that has grown up without that father figure. Um, and man, nothing will crush the spirit of your children faster than, than being harsh with your kids as, as a father. And we are intended to be gentle as our heavenly father has been gentle with us. What would it look like to cultivate a culture of gentleness in your home? 1 Peter 3.7 is pretty clear. It says, husbands in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So men, are you being gentle with your wife? Are you being gentle with her? Um, this, this particular text, the, the idea of the weaker vessel, it's the idea in Greek, it's almost like a teacup. It's a fragile teacup. We, we, should be, we should be gentle with the teacup so that we don't crush it. So healthy relationships cannot exist under force or threat. It's an environment of gentleness where people flourish. Where people flourish. And it is God's, I mean, think about it. It's God's kindness and gentleness that leads us to repentance. It's his gentleness for us. So what might it look like if you were gentle with your wife and with your children? Not weak, gentle. Not, not convictional, gentle. Gentle, humble and gentle. All right, number three, patience. Okay, this one. <laughs> As a society, we are not a patient people. Nothing in our culture promotes patience. I mean, everything is about speed and quickness. We can have, you know, information that, that, that generations ago people never would have dreamed of having. We can have any bit of information almost that we want within a, you know, snap of a finger and a search on Google. Like, we, everything moves fast. I mean, think about, it, you know, picking your, your internet provider. You know, you got, you know, fin uh, Infinity with, with Fios and... Um, 
Oh, no, 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 wait a minute, which, one, which one's which? You've got, yeah, I can't remember. Anyways, everybody's saying, mine's fastest, we're faster than these guys, we're faster than here. Everybody's trying to go faster than the other guy. We've got fast food, we've got, yeah, Xfinity, uh, you know, internet speeds, everything. We can be on the other side of the world in one day. Literally, on the other side of the world in one day. Like, we live in a time of history where everything is about moving faster and speed. I know some of y'all, like, you sit down at a restaurant, and if you're not greeted within the first minute or two, you're just sitting there like, tips going down, tips going down, right? Like, like we we're, we're just want everything fast. I mean, I know for me, I'm, I'm sitting at my computer, that little spinny ball is my nemesis, right? I'm sitting there, I'm like, why are you spinning, right? Like, let's go, let's go. I get on the highway, and, and you know, if someone's in front of me going, going slow, I'm like, this guy, you know, and I'm, I'm going around, my wife's looking at me like, you need Jesus, like, oh my gosh, right, calm down, I mean, this one's convicting to me, because I, I certainly would not categorize myself as a patient man, like, I, re- I was, you know, meditating on this this week, and I'm like, oh, okay, Lord, you know, I mean, we, we, we are called to be a patient people, why? Just ponder how patient God is with you, truly, it's unbelievable how patient God is with us. And it's just, it's amazing to see how God works. Like a friend of mine, literally, he was a crack addict. Like not, that's not a, an exaggeration. He was literally a crack addict. He comes to faith in Jesus and overnight his addiction was gone. Like God does that, right? Like those miraculous stories we hear. But I will tell you that by and large, by and large, most of us, the things that we struggle with, we struggle with them over the long haul. And, and we, we fall short and we make mistakes and we're rest- the process of sanctification. This is why 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we're being you know, sanctified and transformed one degree to the next. Like there's this process, right? You don't jump from 60 degrees to 70 degrees. No, 60, 61, 62, 63. There is a, there's a process of transformation that is happening in all of our lives and God is unbelievably patient with you. Think about the, whatever temptation it is that you struggle with How patient has God been in your process of wrestling through that temptation? God is so patient. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So just think about your last week. Think about your last day. What have you done that dishonors the Lord? What have you done? How patient has God been with you? And now he says, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, a follower of Jesus means you're not only humble, you're not only gentle, we're patient with each other. We're patient with one another. And there's going to be plenty of opportunity to not be patient with each other. But let's be patient with each other. All right, and then the last one is bearing with one another in love. I, I, I love this one. Literally, the Greek, it, it basically means that the, the Christian life is a life of putting up with one another, like tolerating each other. And, and, and remember, we're talking about the church. We're talking about this, this, this letter was written to the church, and Paul is saying 
hey, there's going to be times where you just have to bear with each other and love each other. There's going to be times where you just got to tolerate each other. It's like a family, right? My kids are a little bit older, but those of you that have kids, there's, like a, there's a time period where your, your kid, around like 18 months or so, they, they become much more aware of what's going on around them, but they don't necessarily have the words to communicate what they're thinking and feeling. Like I know my son, he was in that place and he just screams. Ah! You know, we used to say, release the Kraken, you know, because he would just scream. And, and, um, and, and, and what do we do with him in that moment? Man, we, we tolerate him. We love him. Like, we, we just make it through because he's family. He's family. We love him. And, and it should be in the same church, the same in the church. I mean, if you're with anyone for an extended period of time, there's going to be things that rub you the wrong way. And, and what this means is that we don't bail on each other when times get hard, right? We're committed to one another. Now, I'm not talking about tolerating sin or heresy. That's not what this is about. This is about uh, the ways that we drive each other crazy, the idiosyncrasies we have, like the little nuances that, that can just, we just drive each other crazy. And Paul is saying, no, bear with one another in love. Be committed to each other. And, and, and the, the fact that he wrote this in this passage to me says there's going to be opportunity for you. He, he's anticipating, as there's a people, there are going to be times where they, they, they need to tolerate one another. And so, so we need to be people who are extending grace, bearing with one another in love. And, and I'll just put this plug in, too. I think, I think that um, part of the kind of the implicit connotation to this is this idea of a commitment to a local body, right? We live in an area where people ping here and there and everywhere, right? Like, I'm, I'm here, I'm there, like, I'm trying this church out, I'm trying that church out. And, and, it, and a lot of times in Northern Virginia, D.C. culture, it's rare to see people who are committed to a local body. People, people are flaky. And um, there's no such thing as a privatized gospel. Like, you can't read the scriptures and see a, a privatized gospel gospel. Like, it's just me and Jesus. No, it, it's all over the place. It is the church. It is the body. It is a communal faith. And so with that, Paul is saying, hey, be committed to a people and bear with them. Don't bail when it gets difficult. Like, be committed to a local church. And um, and when you're, you're in that, you know, I mean, if you find yourself in a small group or a community group or someone's just bugging you, hey, welcome to biblical Christianity. Praise God, right? Like, I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's your opportunity to be faithful to this particular text. So get into community in such a way that you will have to tolerate others and they're going to have to tolerate you. All right. All right, let's wrap this thing up. So then we go, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. All right, this idea of unity. Paul uses the word one seven times in three verses. You think it's important. I mean, seven times in three verses. And here's the thing. We don't do unity for unity's sake. Like, we're not doing unity just because we want to be unified. 
we are unified ultimately because God is unified. We, we worship a Trinitarian God who is, who is three persons, yet one. Um, Augustine said about the Trinity, he said, if you get rid of the Trinity, you lose your soul. If you try to understand the Trinity, you lose your mind, right? I mean, it, it's kind of, a, it's like, what? Trinity 3, 1? Ah. But, but the, it's in the scriptures. Three but one. And God has perfect unity with himself. He is unified. And so, therefore, as the church, we want to display his glory and we want to be about putting his manifold wisdom on display. And so to do that, we are to be a unified people motivated by the theological oneness that we see in God that we then reflect that through humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. So this, this, is, this is what we do. Um, and with that, I mean, just the beauty of God in, in, in the work of salvation we see in Scripture. God the Father has the plan from before the foundation of the world. Man falls into sin and, and fractures that relationship with him. The Son, in obedience, empties himself, comes to earth, humbles himself as a servant, empowered by the Spirit, lives a perfect life, and willingly lays his life down for you and for me. He rises from the grave, triumphant over sin and death, defeating them once and for all, ascends into heaven, and then sends the Holy Spirit, who now is at work in the world, convicting people of sin, regenerating our hearts, giving us faith in him, we have the Father, Son, Holy Spirit in perfect harmony, all God, all being equal, all having every attribute of God, but working together to accomplish salvation. It's beautiful. It's, they're one. And I love this. It says we have one testimony. 4, 5, verse, verse 5. One testimony. And uh, and I, I think a lot of times we, we can end up comparing testimonies. Oh, the crack addict. Well, I don't have a story like that. I prayed to receive Christ when I was five years old with my grandma. But what this is saying is that mm -mm, it's the same. At the root, we have one testimony. We are all in Christ through faith. Like, there, there's no, like, better testimony. We have one testimony. That's it. And we are unified. We are one people, brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no better testimony than the other. We have one testimony. Jesus is Lord. And so, um, just, just to close, I, guys, I just would love a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, the Way City Church is just this beautiful beacon of what unity looks like, that, that you guys would be known as a church that is marked by humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. People just know it because they see it. That, that's my hope, and that's what I've been praying for you guys this week and, um, and, and for all of our church plants, but, I mean, it just would be a beautiful thing if God did that work in you. 
and just that, that you guys would be, have a deep, deep conviction that, that fighting for unity is so important. And, and I'll tell you this, there, there will, we have a very real enemy who wants to, where God wants to unify, the enemy wants to divide. And so um, just be on guard, be in prayer, love each other well and deeply, be committed to each other, don't give up on each other. God didn't give up on you, fight for it. Uh, there will be plenty of opportunity for, for there to be division. And so just remember these words when that opportunity comes. Humility, gentleness, patience, bear with one another in love. And I, I just believe that when you do that, there's going to be this beautiful testimony and the, the manifold wisdom of God will be put on display in Woodbridge, Virginia. So, super thankful to be here with you guys. Um, let me pray for you and we'll, we'll finish up with a song. God, we love you. Um, like I said before, you alone are worthy of our praise. And God, just thinking about all these attributes, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, Jesus, you displayed all of those traits with perfection. And Jesus, we just want to be more like you. We want to be a church that is uh, putting your wisdom of bringing together a people from every background, every race, every socioeconomic class, and just bringing a people together that really have no business being together except for how you have brought them together as brothers and sisters adopted into the family of God. And so I just pray the Way City Church would be a church that is unified in their love for you, God, and in their passion to make your name known and great in this city. Lord, we lift up the yearwoods to you. We pray for Deborah. Heal her of her cancer, God. Do the miraculous, God, that she would go in for a scan and they would just say, there's no cancer there anymore. We pray for that because you can do it. You have all the power in the world. But Lord, if you choose not to do that, we pray she would be healed through doctors and medicine, which is also a way in which you heal. So God, we just pray for her complete healing. We pray for Marlon. Give him the strength he needs to love his wife, love his children, to lead his family through this difficult season. I pray for this church, God, that you would empower and, and strengthen them to be uh, a support through this season. And Lord, uh, above all else, we just pray that your glory through this whole situation would be made known and great even more than it already is through this church, God, that you would just write a beautiful testimony of your power that, Lord, five years from now, we'd be saying, look at what God did. Look at how he used this to, to, to lead people who didn't know Jesus to know Jesus and to unify this church and to, to use it that his name would be declared and, and made even uh, uh, greater renown throughout this city because of this whole situation, God. So 
We just pray for that, and, and we know, Lord, that you love the Yearwoods, and we know you are for them and with them, and you are working all things for the good of those who you have called and um, who are called according to your purposes, Lord. So that's our hope. That's our prayer. Uh, we just thank you, God, that you are good and that your steadfast love endures forever. Do abundantly more than we could ever ask or think. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time together, and we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We'd love to hear from you. Visit us at thewaycitychurch.org.